Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, ADAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. So I'm going to get started. Hopefully we'll start getting some more people who want to contribute as we get started. But firstly, um, just want to say happy Sunday, everybody. Um, I hope you've had a fantastic week. It's week two for some, week three for others. I really hope that it's been a good week, a positive week. Obviously, last time um, I was on a couple of weeks ago, we talked about well-being. I hope that your well-being is good. I hope that um, you've had a chance to relax over this weekend. I hope you've had some fantastic experiences and that you're feeling refreshed and ready to go tomorrow. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about safeguarding and how we ensure best practice. So as we move through this, through today, we're going to talk about all things safeguarding. Um, but before we do, I just want to give a little trigger warning. Obviously, we're going to be talking about safeguarding. And as part of that, some of the language that we use, some of the topics that we talk about may invoke a little bit of an emotional response. Um, it's really important in safeguarding that you safeguard your own well-being. So please just be mindful um, please look after yourselves. That's really important. I think that this is a really important topic that we're going to be speaking about today. And hopefully it's going to offer you some really good tips and advice for how we can ensure that best practice across school. Um, please get in touch if you've got any comments, uh, if there's any topics or stories relating to safeguarding that you want to share. Um, this is a safe space. Um, it is really important that you safeguard yourself and that we safeguard each other. So let's just go into this with kindness um, and with respect for each other. So safeguarding, such a huge issue in schools and such a loaded word. Um, It can cause a lot of anxiety for some staff, a lot of concern that they are doing things correctly, that um, they are providing the best possible safeguarding practice that they can. For some people who live and breathe it every day, It's about constantly reviewing that safeguarding practice. It's just an everyday aspect of their lives. But it is everybody's responsibility to safeguard not just children and young people, but also our education staff that work in schools. So I think today, hopefully, this is going to be a really positive and engaging session. Obviously, we know that safeguarding underpins everything. It's something that I am really, really passionate about. Um, One of my roles within my school is Deputy Safeguarding Lead and um, it's a role that I really enjoy. 
Um, it's one that I feel really passionate about. Um, but it is tough and it can be really challenging. So I would love to know your thoughts. What's your safeguarding policy like? Is it robust? Do you constantly review it? Is it something that's just touched upon in inset days on the first day back? Something where you have the occasional um, training on and then it's just put to the side? Or is it something that's constantly reviewed daily, weekly, termly? Are you confident in putting your safeguarding policy into practice? Are you confident in reporting it, spotting the signs and the issues? As a DDSL, I'm really lucky. I get to go on lots of training and I have a brilliant team that support me, but it's still challenging. And since I've been putting out um, the tweets regarding the show, I've had a lot of feedback to say the same, to say that we've got educators who are concerned about the issues regarding safeguarding, who are interested in the changes to the Keeping Children Safe in Education um, 2023. So obviously this is a really popular issue. So what are the main issues and concerns at the moment? Well, for me personally, I've sort of broken them down to a few different topics. You might agree with me, you might not. So I would love to hear your feedback on this. Please, you know, drop me a message or request to speak if you'd like to contribute. I'd love to hear from you. Um, so my first initial thoughts when I was sort of breaking it down and thinking about what are the main concerns for me at the moment, the first one was child sexual abuse material. We know that there is an ever-changing world online and it's really, really common um, with the material found on mainstream socials and online gaming platforms that we know that this issue is increasing. We know that we're seeing a lot more images being shared. In 2021, there were 85 million pictures and videos reported online. That's only the reported ones, 85 million. How do we combat this in schools? Does the PSHE, personal development form time, cover enough about this? And are we empowering our students enough to feel confident to report any issues around this area? Do your safeguarding team and your pastoral team keep up to date with the socials that are available and what children and young people are using? That's one of the main areas that I've really struggled with personally. There are just so many apps now and it could almost be a full-time job just keeping on top of those and how young people are communicating, how young people are gaming and how they are able to access and share information. So is it feasible for safeguarding teams to stay on top of, of the latest trends and the apps and the programmes that are being used? Are, are we able to do that when we know that our daily routines, our daily lives as educators are already really busy? It, it, it's tough. It's really tough to stay on top of it and it's really tough to um to know that this is going on but that's it's certainly something that we've been trying to make as a team within my school but also personally a priority is to stay aware stay alert I think social media um is a really good way particularly um you know um 
different platforms are a really good way to stay on top of the trends um, that young people, because we're really good at sharing that information, aren't we, now on X, aka Twitter, um, and, and sharing that information with each other. But it is time consuming, isn't it? And it's ever changing. So that for me is a main priority this year and one that certainly um, within my safeguarding practice is something that I'm constantly reviewing. Am I on top of it? Do I know what's going on? Am I able to sort of listen out for those apps and are they appropriate and, and what is being shared on them? Obviously, another big one is child on child sexual violence and harassment. There are reports that two thirds of girls and young people um, and young women are experiencing sexual harassment in school. I mean, that is just absolutely shocking, isn't it? And I know that lots of schools have put things into place um, to support and make sure that they are um, working on that, that they are ensuring that, 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 that be, those types of behaviours aren't going on. But we are seeing a rise in public figures, aren't we, and influences. And, you know, the rise in popularity because of the extreme messages, particularly around misogyny, um, are, are becoming popular because it's it's controversial, um, it, you know, it's challenging. And, you know, is enough being done to challenge those views and, and to ensure that everyone's safe? Um, I think it's a really, really tricky area. You know, there are a lot of these influences that are extremely popular and um, and promote messages that, you know, personally I don't agree with. Um, has your school implemented any specific strategies or programmes? If they have, I would absolutely love to hear from you. Um, I know that from a personal perspective that my school have done a number of surveys where they've worked with young people, with our young people, our children, our young people, to get their feedback. Um, one really, really good example of that was to get a school map and get pupils um, and students to identify the kinds of the, the areas where they thought may be unsafe, get the staff to do the same and look at those areas and then where possible, put extra staff in place in those areas. And that was received really, really well by staff and pupils. And I think it is really good practice because actually the areas that we as staff think, mm, yeah, no, you know, we do need a member of staff there may not actually be the same as what your students think. Now, obviously, we've got to think from an operational point of view and, you know, that, that there may be reasons why students don't think that. But it's really important to get their feedback. So um, another area extremism and radicalization our children and young people are so vulnerable aren't they um sometimes extreme groups and worldviews um especially with the rise in influences can be appealing and our children and young people can be manipulated and feel that they're part of something that gives them a sense of maybe acceptance or belonging without really realizing that there's an agenda behind it now, I know lots of schools use the prevent duty training, but is that enough? Do you feel confident in being able to identify early those key signs of radicalisation and extremism? Is it something that, that you're facing within your own school or that you have faced? If it is, please do drop a message. Do please request to speak because I would really love to hear from you on that lived experience. 
Um, so another one of the concerns, I, you know, for me is one of the main concerns moving forward this academic year is definitely around domestic abuse. In 2022, there were approximately 156,000 domestic violence incidents reported. And again, they're only the ones that have been reported. One in five adults will experience domestic violence during their lifetime. They are shocking statistics. Do you as a school feel confident that you're able to identify those key signs early? And what is your practice around that? Obviously, you have your safeguarding policy, but do you work closely with different agencies? Um, While I was researching this, I found a really uh, interesting piece of information um, that said that from January 2022, Section 3 of the Domestic Abuse Act uh, said that children under 18 who see, hear or experience the effects of domestic violence and are related to the victim or suspect are also regarded as a victim. Now, obviously, for many schools, they may be um, may be part of the Operation Encompass um, programme. So you do get those alerts about DV within households. But what support is out there? As I said, as a school, are you confident in working with those external agencies? Are we trained enough to spot the signs? Are we trained enough to work with those families? And and what is our role in that? Because obviously there is a line and it can be really tricky. And, you know, are we able to get those charities in or those agencies in to work with those children and families? Where, Where does our role fit in to that? I would be really, really interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um. Finally, sort of two for me as we move forward this academic year that, that kind of go hand in hand um, are those ACEs, those adverse childhood experiences and also mental health. So obviously um, for lots of us that work with young people who've got ACEs, it is a traumatic event or situation that the child experiences. And it's so difficult to identify what ACEs are, isn't it? Because obviously we have those ones that, you know, us as adults would go, yes, that is absolutely an ace. You know, we've just talked about DV, domestic violence. Yes, absolutely. That is straight away, we know, an ace, an adverse childhood experience. But it's so nuanced because it's it's personal to the child as well. For many children and young people, COVID and lockdown was a an ace, And so, you know, we need to think about now the impact of those ACEs on children's mental health. Do schools receive enough training on ACEs? Do our pastoral teams, do our mentors, if you are lucky enough to have a counsellor, do they have enough time to support children who have ACEs? Are there programmes in place to support those children? And do we think that, you know, the rise in mental health in our children and young people needs to be addressed further? Do we need to see more holistic approaches in schools? And and does that need to be a priority for the government? You know, obviously um, there has been some government initiatives. There was the funding for senior mental health leads, but but is that enough? Are we programming timing? You know, even with the, the training that we can receive as educators, 
we're not specialists, are we? So how far do we go with that mental health support? And at what point do we bring those mental health charities and support agencies in? Now, obviously, as part of ACEs, we've talked about mental health. Um, it's a huge concern at the moment. Anxiety, low moods, self-harm. The NHS data revealed that more than three and a half thousand urgent cases of under 18s came through in May. That is three times higher than May 2019. And in 2022, 18% of children aged 7 to 16 and 22% of children and young people aged 17 to 24 had a probable mental disorder. I mean, we just know that mental health is such a big issue affecting our young people. And lots of schools are using PSHE to address these issues and schools are buying in support services and agencies. But but is it enough? Is your school seeing an increase in children's mental health and the issues surrounding that? And, and what role do we play in, as a safeguarding team? And when I say team, I mean everyone because it is everyone's responsibility. You have your D, DSL, your DDSL. You may have a pastoral team, but, but as a whole school safeguarding team, what's our responsibility? How do we offer that best support? While you have a little think about that, I would just like to read a little bit of information from today's sponsor. So, teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where EDAPT come in. They're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support protection without politics. So what makes EDAP different? They're always apolitical and independent. They specialise solely in supporting individual teachers. Every caseworker is professionally qualified, ensuring you get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are there for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT, supporting school staff, protecting careers. And here's something special for Teachers Talk Radio listeners during September. Use the codes TTRANNUAL or TTR monthly, and you'll receive a 10% discount on a subscription. With EDAPT, you could save over £80 compared to an equivalent union membership. So thank you, EDAPT, for sponsoring the show. Really, really important, isn't it, that we have that, that union support, um, massively important within Safeguarding, so really glad to have them on board. Um, so we're talking all things Safeguarding. Obviously, I've been through a few of the things that I think are the main concerns, particularly, I think, um, around the mental health aspect as well. So, again, would be really uh, keen to hear from you um, if you have any specific timetables or activities, PSHE lessons, form times, assemblies, that, where you focus on those key issues, the child sexual abuse uh, material, 
whether the child-on-child abuse and harassment, the, the radicalization extremism, the, the ACEs, the, the mental health. How do you and your school provide that best possible well-rounded support? Um, I am aware that time <laughs> is a precious commodity um, and with the demands, as I said, of the academic day, is it possible to fit all that in? Is it possible for us to offer those those, those supports and, and address those issues regularly so that we are having safeguarding best practice? But is it possible to do that regularly all of the time? Um, there's just so many areas at the moment, isn't there, to cover? And we are going to try and cover some of those today, um, particularly the Keeping Children Safe in Education 2023. Um. But for now, I would really like to introduce um, sort of my guest today. Um, today's focus is all around safeguarding best practice and how we can ensure those best possible outcomes for our young people. And I think it's really important to hear from people that do that. Um, so I'm going to be introducing Pip Paul. She is a specialist um, safeguarding lead who supports mainstreams, um, both primary and secondary across Merseyside, as well as working herself within alternative provision. She's got 20 years experience in education um, and it is really experienced in dealing with safeguarding issues. Um, so welcome to the show, Pip. Thank you, Anna. Um, it's a pleasure to be yeah, here. It's lovely to have you here. Um, I, you are in for a little bit of a grilling because I think as part of um, the show today, and thinking about best practice, I think it's really important to have that kind of first-hand experience. And obviously, I know that you've had lots and lots of that. Um, so I think it, it would be yeah, really, really good um, to, to talk to you about that and, and kind of get your thoughts around safeguarding and, 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 and how we ensure that best practice. So do you kind of just want to introduce yourself to the listeners, if that's okay? Yeah, so as Anna said, my name is Pip Paul. Um, I've been a DSL for over 20 years. Um, initially, when the Every Child Matters came out was when that first became my focus. Um, and I don't know how old the listeners are, but whether people remember the five points of stay safe, healthy, enjoy and achieve economic well-being and positive contribution. That was how originally my safeguarding journey started. Um, and I've always worked in alternative provisions. I only when I did my training worked in mainstreams and I feel I'm a lifer. I absolutely love um, where I work. I love the children. I love the challenges that come with it. But like you say, with that comes a lot of safeguarding because of the vulnerableness of our children. And do you think working in an alternative room, because as I, sort of I mentioned, you, you do offer advice and liaise quite regularly with sort of mainstreams as well, both primary and secondary. So kind of for our mainstream listeners who maybe haven't got as much experience of alternative, but have safeguarding issues within um, within their own schools quite you know naturally as it comes up do you think working on alternative provision has enabled you to kind of have a, a a wider breadth of understanding of safeguarding and the issues yeah I think um I did uh, uh some data analysis of last year's safeguarding issues 
um, in my school. And last year, 1,232 uh, reports were put on CPOMs for me to oversee in action. So, you know, the breadth of them cover some of the subjects you've mentioned earlier, Anna. Um, And it it just, you know, don't forget, I might work in an alternative provision, but our children come from mainstreams. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Just for anyone that, that doesn't know, obviously CPOMS is one of the uh, reporting programmes out there. There are other ones, but obviously that's a lot, isn't it? It's a huge amount of reporting. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how how you would manage that day to day, but that's obviously from that comes a lot of experience and a lot of um I guess a lot of knowledge as well around safeguarding because you're having to deal with that many in a year. Yeah, it, it doesn't, over the years, you know, different challenges, you, you learn from them. So, you know, I, I'm certainly no expert. I learn every single day about children, about families, about, you know, safeguarding. But what it does do is it makes you realise that, you know, there are ways to deal with things and at, with practice and with experience, you know, you know the right ways to follow up, the best ways to support the families and make sure that, you know, you're, you're keeping yourself safe by following your policies and your procedures. Yeah, I mean, it is hard, isn't it? Because I think for for, for listeners, I think it's it, it can invoke a, a sort of a, a real fear, can't it? Because, you know, whatever programme you use, you've, you've, you've got to report things and, and you're trying to stay as vigilant as you can, but you're also trying to balance the everyday life of kind of um, day-to-day routine of teaching and supporting and, and, and marking and paperwork and everything else. And then there's all these other aspects, including the reporting and following things up and actions. And and sometimes, I guess, for, for some some staff, it, it can feel really overwhelming. And, it, and I guess it must feel like that for you for you as the dsl at times you know to to have all these cases to to look at and and know that you know it, it it's it's your responsibility to get it right it, it is and i think the key is that the staff and you know time always comes up doesn't it there isn't enough time there aren't enough hours in the day to do what you would normally do let alone make sure that all the children are, are safe and, you know, in in your kind of set. And for me, you know, the key for me is always have a conversation. If you're not sure, have a conversation. Send an email, say I need to speak to you and have that conversation because, you know, if you've got a good thing, think something isn't right, it's generally accurate. You know your children you teach them every day, you see them every day, you may see parents, you may contact parents, your knowledge of them children will will give you the confidence to know when something isn't right. And, and the safeguarding is a little bit like a hot potato. Oh, I found out this, there you go, to, to myself or DDSL or whoever. Actually, the person who has that information is the person best placed to log it and inform that'll inform how I will then take that forward I think that's a really good piece of advice actually that you know it to to to, that if it it, reporting everything is is so important and much more important than kind of being selective because some you know I'm going to talk about it a little bit later but for for me and it's something I've sort of learned on my journey 
safeguarding is about the bigger picture. So it may only be one small, one small thing. And in isolation, it doesn't think it doesn't fit with anything. It doesn't seem like it's a big deal. It doesn't it doesn't feel um, like a huge safeguarding risk. It feels like a niggle. But when you slot that piece in and step back, suddenly the bigger picture is revealed. And actually, it's that tiny piece of information that you might have sort of been selective with and gone, oh, I don't need to report that. That's the key to unlocking a much bigger safeguarding issue. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I always use the phrase a jigsaw. It's yeah. like a jigsaw. And you've got a piece of that jigsaw, which, like you say, on its own, standalone, doesn't seem overly concerning. But put together with everything else, you know, creates that child's lived experience. And we know what they're dealing with and how we can best support them. And I think one of the key things for me is don't always assume somebody else has reported it. So if you've had a conversation with a colleague about a concern, don't assume they have reported it. I would much rather read 1,200 CPOMs and three or four of them be about the same incident because I know that is being reported and we are getting the information. That's really... I mean, we've just had a tweet actually from Miss M that says, I always say that if something makes you think twice, then report it. It does no harm in reporting it. And also she wants to say as well that it doesn't come down to one person. You might just be the DSL, but it doesn't It doesn't just fall on them. And I think that's that's just reiterating, isn't it? That it's it does no harm to report things. It, it, it really doesn't. And it is everyone's responsibility. So like you said, even if it's three or four reports on the same incident, it it, it is everyone's responsibility. Um, so obviously, you know, you, you're supporting a lot of mainstreams um, and obviously working an alternative and you've, you've, you know, you've already given one really good piece of advice there about making sure that you just report absolutely everything. But what do you think are the challenges for sort of teachers and support staff and safeguarding teams at the moment when it comes to safeguarding? Kind of what, what are your experiences and what do you think they are for mainstreams? I, I think... The main challenge is obviously the time to report. If you've got a concern, it needs to be reported in a timely manner, accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my school, I always say to staff, if you've got a concern that you don't think can wait till maybe when I read CPOMs at the end of the day, you need to come and see myself or a member of the safeguarding team immediately. Mm-hmm. That is key, that we're not sending a child home to somewhere that may be unsafe. Um, I think another concern is sometimes parents and carers are not being involved in the safeguarding process, sometimes because it's a child protection concern and you wouldn't inform them, but sometimes they don't want to be involved in it. It's almost like burying the head in the sand. So that for me is the main challenge, especially with, you know, not just my school, but mainstreams as well. And it can be tough, can't it? Because, you know, if we take, for example, a, a large a large secondary school, finding the time to, you know, to, to be relieved from teaching, to go and make that report can be difficult, can't it? Because of timetabling and, and staffing, et cetera. But I think it's about finding that key point of contact, isn't it? Whether that is your head of department, whether it's, you know, the pastoral team, safeguarding team, getting an email sent out even if even if they have if they're non if they're a non-teacher non-teaching pastoral team or a non-teaching safeguarding team perhaps even just as as teachers if you are in the classroom emailing and saying can you come to me 
and then finding you know somebody that can either cover or or at least finding a way to 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 share that information confidentially of course but they may have to come to you for you to get that information to them but you're right get it reported as soon as you possibly can because then things can be put in place can't they to 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 kind of safeguard the children safe you know safeguard the staff but you're right it needs to be reported asap and even if it's difficult it's got to be done um what what about in terms of i'm just thinking around you you mentioned about kind of parents and carers and involving them where you can again it's tough isn't it if you're in a huge you know if you're part of a multi-academy or if you're in a big huge you know school you you might not always have the relationships with those parents because you you're teaching so many um pupils um do you think that's where sort of your pastoral team and your, your your kind of your safeguarding team play a part in kind of working with those families and, and, and being that kind of bridge between teachers and, and the parents and carers? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got key staff in school, attendance officers, mentors, parents, carers, potentially as well, if the family are working with any external agencies that's a good way to try and link in because they're already involved and working. So they're more likely to, to, you know, accept support, accept help. And, you know, the teacher may be the person who's identified it, but it needs to be, like you say, your pastoral staff, your other team who can support them parents in, you know, starting to trust the school and believe that the school have got the best interests at heart. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, relationships are key, aren't they? It's kind of comes seems to come down to kind of that that communication and those relationships, and 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 they are key. But you know, from your point of view, obviously, you know, the landscape of sort of of education has changed, and I, you know, I don't want to hark on too much about post COVID because I think you know we 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 all recognise the challenges that lockdown and COVID um, caused, and, and and we face because of that. And, for many of us, we're still experiencing that with our, our children, our young people now. But but do you think that safeguarding, perhaps as a result of that, and even maybe before, do you, do you think it's changed in the last few years? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it comes back to what you were saying earlier, Anna, about the online dangers. When you've spent almost two years in your home mm-hmm. and your one lifeline to the outside world was your phone and apps and, you know, social media, the 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 concern for me is that is where our young people spend most of their life you know an average teenager will spend 42 percent of their day on a device wow um, yeah that that's 20 data from 22 42 percent of the day so for me the challenges in safeguarding are if we can physically see them in school for example if it was a physical abuse or an emotional or we could see it the online dangers we cannot see mm-hmm. and that for me post-covid like you say with the online being all they had for that time for me is the biggest change that we've had in safeguarding because all of the other concerns around you know exploitation extremism can all be done online and yeah. we do not see it and yeah. and when as we know when children are on their own with the devices they're invincible and, and that is a massive concern for me. And that's probably the biggest change, I would say, over the past few years. So I, I it, for me, I, I'm still really struggling with it because I, I guess I'm a little bit old school, really. And I'm still, I'm not, um, I'm not as au fait with kind of 
technology as as many of the listeners will be and I know that there's in, incredible educators out there doing amazing work but one of the things I worry about is kind of like from my kind of limited knowledge is a I am always trying to stay up to date with what I can because I, I know that I need to as part of that safeguarding role but it's things like AI and how responsive that is and these kind of apps now that are really encrypted and it's really hard to track things and I worry about what our children and young people are being exposed to and are sharing and it's not traceable because it's it's ever evolving with that use of AI and, and you know encryption and how do we I mean obviously as educators we play a part we absolutely play a vital part but we can't fix everything but how do we how or how do you think we can navigate it within the context of our school what can we what can we do <laughs> Is there anything we can do? I mean, all we can do, it's almost trying to negate as much as possible. And for me, you've got to get the parents and carers involved. You know, we have sessions in our school around various issues that affect us kind of demographically. And we will get parents in and do a session on online and what to look for. You know, some parents are very good and will have, you know, locks on children's phones and, you know, be able to access everything. But there are an awful lot who have complete full reign over their own phone and, and nobody checks it. And it's about informing the parents of the dangers as well and trying to support them in managing, you know, the child's online usage. Do you think from a school point of view, do you think that's where to kind of go hand in hand with that? That's where you kind of your assemblies and your PSHE and whether you know you do personal development or you know however you frame it in your school do you think that's where we we can kind of impart that information on our young people to empower them absolutely they are the key lessons you know and it's about being real with our young people mm -hmm. you know online is not real is it you know there's an awful lot of fakeness online in the real world you know children have been groomed on games like young breck and you know murdered and our children need to know that to to understand that you know people are not always who they say they are there's a lot of really good resources out there um card games where you know it's almost like profile pictures from yeah. facebook and things like that you and can I suppose, use with them I, I suppose as well um understanding that around sharing images as well and around as they you know become teenagers kind of the 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 law aspect around that as well and and the the kind of the risk they're taking not just to themselves in terms of you know taking those images but also in in sharing them and 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 them understanding the law as well would you you know what would would you sort of agree with that that that's we, we need to be teaching them about that absolutely mm -hmm. because you know, they, they, it's done in an instant, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. If years ago I wanted to post a picture um, of myself um, in a bikini or in the nude or whatever, I would have to, A, physically take the photograph, yeah. B, take it to be, you know, developed, then get it back from the developers and then put it in an envelope and post it. There's lots of points there where I would have to stop and think, now it's instantaneous to our children. They take the picture, send it, receive it, a picture, an inappropriate picture, send it to somebody else, and they're distributing child pornography without knowing it. And like you say, the legal aspect of that, 
future in life it could be massive for them yeah it's it's such a it, it it's such a it's such a difficult it's it's difficult isn't it because like you said it can be instantaneous there can be not it can not be thought out and 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 for a lot of our young people they sort of don't really understand those repercussions and 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 don't you know because it, it doesn't feel like it's it, there will be any because it's going out sort of into the ether but actually like you said there are you know there are legal repercussions there are social emotional repercussions from it and and once it's out there it's part of your digital footprint even if it's taken down so i think definitely for for listeners who are thinking about you know how they can improve that safeguarding best practice and how they can ensure that it's robust my advice which i'm sure would be yours is to make sure that you know you are having those assemblies that you are incorporating it into pshe because while it pshe is now statutory and has um you know key areas to focus on you can make it bespoke to your school to your area and if this is something that is happening it's really important that you don't shy away from it that you address it and that you address it quickly and you give the the all the information to to you know to to your students so that they can make informed choices and, and make better choices um, so obviously, as I mentioned, we are thinking about safeguarding and how to ensure best practice pick. Um, what does that look like to you? You know, what are the what are the are there any sort of common mistakes? Because obviously, as I said, you know, you do work with a lot of different schools. Are there any and there's no blame here. You know, we're not trying to blame everyone, any anyone at all. Everyone is human and mistakes are made. But are there any common mistakes that are made that we can kind of like learn from to ensure best practice? Yeah, one I mentioned earlier is thinking somebody else has reported it. Mm. You know, that, that is a common mistake. Um, not following your policy and procedures. Make sure you know and understand your responsibility and your policy and procedures. Because some people think, oh, that's not for me to do. Yeah. Um, and also one of the other ones is some staff thinking GDPR affects the sharing of safeguarding information. So they may hold some information about a child but think they aren't able to share it because of gdpr safeguarding supersedes that that you know that is another common mistake that that staff sometimes make yeah i think that i mean that's a really important one isn't it because a gdpr is so complex and you can be quite fearful can't you of, of the repercussions of that so i think that's really important for our listeners to know that safeguarding does absolutely supersede that um, we've actually had some comments, Pip, that I just want to read out to you. Um, so in response to kind of what we've been talking about, Miss Emma's put, we've spoken about this recently, that even if you're writing up your safeguarding concern, still going and seeing the DSL, uh, just as you would of when you used to hand in written safeguarding concerns. That's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, we, we want to be clear that there's lots of different reporting tools out there. But with things going online, we are having less of those conversations because it's just simply you're simply able to upload it. And I think, would you agree that with best practice, that's a really good point? So, you know, we used to hand them in and on paper, you'd have that conversation, but to report it online and still go and have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah. you know, for yourself as well, because it's your perception of something, isn't it? Which obviously our perceptions are built on our values, our upbringing and sometimes you need to just have that conversation with someone and get it clear that that is accurate what you're saying and what you're putting down and I always 
advise in school, come and see me. It doesn't matter how busy I am. Come and find me if you have a concern that is not sitting right with you. And and it has gone away from that a little bit, again, with the COVID, with everything being online. But, you know, just, you know, yourself, a conversation can just clarify things in your own head as well. Definitely. And that open culture of, of that open door culture of saying, no, safeguarding, we all know it's everyone's responsibility, but that as, as DSL, your door is always open. And, and for safeguarding teams, their door is always open. Come and have that conversation. Don't be afraid that, you know, you're going to look like you don't know what you're doing or you're going to look foolish or you're going to look like you're an over-worrier. Any little concern, go and go and have that conversation and if you create that open door culture mm. and and embrace that it, you know that just ensures that best practice doesn't it really it does and i think you know if you have very clear policies and procedures an experienced and well-trained dsl and i mean well-trained not just nationally but locally you know mm-hmm. keeps up to date with what's going on and you have a safeguarding team to back that up i think good practice as well is that there are posters around school with your safeguarding team on, not just for students, but also for visitors. So up in reception, your safeguarding um, ethos, if you like. So people who enter your school know immediately on entry that actually this is a school that takes safeguarding really seriously. And this is the expectation from me if I am in this school. Yeah, I love that. Well, Amy's given us a a comment, which I just absolutely love, that says, I once completed a training where they stated, gut feeling is your professional instinct. I absolutely love that. I think that is brilliant because it is, you know, we are professionals. We work with children every day and and it is that gut instinct, no matter what it is, that, that, you know, can, can, can make that difference, can't it really? I think, you know, so, so important. Um, I am going to ask you a question. It's, it's quite a loaded question. And then I'm going to leave you to have a little think about it while I, um, I've got a little message from our sponsors. But I, I wanted to ask you this. Do you think there's enough support for children and young people who experience safeguarding issues? So I'm going to leave you to think about that for a second. And I'd love our listeners to co- have a little think about that as well and comment, because I think this is quite a quite a loaded question, really, particularly, obviously, you know, with with government cuts and with with funding etc um so while you have a little think about that i'd just like to read um, some information from our sponsors today so teaching is a rewarding profession but it comes with its fair share of challenges that's where edapt come in they are not your typical trade union but instead a modern apolitical alternative offering expert legal employment and mental health support protection without politics. So what makes EDAP different? They're always apolitical and independent. They specialise solely in supporting individual teachers. Every caseworker is professionally qualified, ensuring you get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAP are there for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT, supporting school staff, protecting careers. And there's something special for Teachers Talk Radio listeners during September. Use the codes TTR Annual or TTR Monthly and you'll receive a 10% discount on a subscription. 
With EDAPT, you could save over £80 compared to an equivalent union membership. Thank you, EDAPT, because obviously it's really important that we're um, that as, as, as teachers and educators that we do have that support and obviously for safeguarding yourself as an educator really important so thank you very much so um Pip I asked you a quite a loaded question I asked you if you thought there was enough support for children and young people who experience safeguarding issues what are your thoughts on that in a word no <laughs> basically um I like you say there's there's some support out there. Unfortunately, the amount of support has dropped over recent years due to funding cuts. And some of the support that is out there has such long waiting lists for that. You know, it can be up to six months before the, the young person can get to see someone. There just doesn't seem to be enough. There's, I mean, you know, you've got online with the NSPCC, Childline, Cooth Counselling. But again, it's all putting the child back online which is what we're saying is one of the biggest concerns is that they're constantly spending a lot of the time online it's really hard isn't it as well because i remember a time and, and it's it's come from from a um from a, a tweet actually from paul and, and big shout out to paul because i know he was he was listening the other week but um he he said um about there being better parental responsibility in terms of courses to support parents with that and I can still remember a time when there were funded parental courses where you know we could come into schools and they could work and 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 a lot of that and I remember our learning mentor doing it um, a lot of work around um, safeguarding and sort of educating parents on that um, and there were incentives for that because it was a deprived area and, I, you know, and, and you know, that was that was kind of part of the deal. But we, we seem to have, have lost a lot of that now and, and lost a lot of those support agencies and, and, and programmes that were available for, for parents and carers as well as children. And it, it, it's worrying, isn't it, really? Because if we're saying safeguarding is a holistic 360 approach and, you know, we need everybody on board if we don't have those resources or the waiting times are really long or services can't follow up because of their own caseloads, what do we do as a school? Because there's only so much we can do, isn't there? There is. And I think, you know, other colleagues here today will agree. School have tended to become a bit of everything to the pupil. Mm -hmm. We're not just educators, we're social workers, you know, and we end up doing far more than we actually physically can do because there isn't anything out there to support the child or the young person you know in in, in the area I work in it is massively deprived you know there's three times the number of people living in poverty than the average of England teenage pregnancies double the average we have the highest termination rate in the country um self-harm for hospital admissions is a third higher Admissions due to alcohol under 18s is a third higher. Substance misuse is more than double the average. And the risk of CE and SE is very high due to all the poverty in the area. So, you know, then statistics show that there isn't enough support out there for young people because a lot of the substance misuse, the alcohol, the pregnancy is all down to the ACEs you discussed earlier, Anna, mm -hmm. and the fact that these children are not getting the additional support. Paul's just said, um, sent a tweet saying that they have a family support worker who works as a TA 
but she's hardly ever in the classroom due to the rising workload because um, but they wouldn't be able to work um well without her and i think that's a really good point that you're saying we've got in in specific areas and and you know across the country there are these massive issues that our young people are facing this drop in services and then we're seeing all these safeguarding issues in school and unless schools are you know self-funding or you know paying for themselves to employ family support workers or pastoral teams um there are massive gaps aren't there and it's and and how and and as a school do we you know we 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 fill them because we 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 you know we we care for and we want our our children and our young people to do the best that they, be the best that they can be and be safe and be happy and we take safeguarding seriously but we can't be everything to everyone and it just feels like there's more and more safeguarding issues and and the responses from everyone you know today on the show is look there are more and more issues when does it you know when, when does it when's the straw that breaks the camel's back when does it we when do we have to say enough is enough i mean we, we can't do everything can we so you know you've talked about signposting kids to different charities and and you know and, and putting in a robust practice as we can but you know is that enough do you think is there is the more that schools can do or are we already doing an awful lot do you think i think schools are doing an awful lot to to support children and, and protect them mm. and i think you know with children's socials care social care are involved with a lot of um our young people there's so many changes there's that the staff retention is really poor so you've got families who, who potentially have a mistrust of authority or you know school and then they get to know someone and you know who air all their dirty laundry for want of a better phrase and then somebody new comes in and it's that as well. So when there is some support out there that may be statutory support, that's not always consistent. The people offering it are not always consistent. Mm-hmm. And that's a concern. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know um from from some of the kind of the 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 messages we've been getting, you know, when I put out there about about the safeguarding and you know, and having this conversation today, had some messages around saying, you know, we are we are absolutely going the extra mile to try and plug those gaps, and we are doing our absolute best to work with um, external agencies. And, and and one said, you know, that's where our key strength lies because we 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 know our children, we know the issues, and we're relentless in communicating with external agencies. And no matter how much they change, because as you said yourself, they can do. We we invite them in. We we make sure you know we 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 work as close as we can with them because in working together it means that we are offering that safe best safeguarding practice but also the the burden on us is is less because we're sharing it with the people who can offer that additional support would you agree with that that it's really important to us where you can as much as possible work with external agencies absolutely i think you know we we use here we use family first and they're great support to the family, great support to the school, I have to say. Um, and it's key that when we have meetings, there's outcomes and everyone has actions. And I think, again, I keep going back to policies and procedures. They keep you safe. They keep the children safe. 
you know, if everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, by when and for who, we are all working together to keep the children safe and everyone is aware of what's going on because they may go and visit the family home twice a week. We don't have capacity to do that, mm-hmm. but we will see the children in school and different people will have different relationships, which when all put together will give us an overview of that child's lived experience and that family's lived experience. Yeah, I think that's maybe one of the key pieces of advice I'd give. If we're thinking about best practices, definitely then to work with, as you know, and if you don't know who those agencies are, Obviously, we have to be mindful of workload, you know, for lots of our teams, our safeguarding teams, safe DSLs, DDSLs, they are also t- uh, teaching staff. So we have to be mindful of, of workload. But if you can research what charities, what organisations and agencies are available in the area um, also that, you know, maybe working with um with with your pupils reach out to them i think as well i know myself i've experienced it ask if they do cpd we we've had in in my school that i work in some amazing cpd that's come from the the pastoral team and, and the safeguarding team saying do you offer any cpd for staff on that you know they, they, they may be working with pupils or they may be in the local area but asking that question and actually then from the CPD, they've become somebody who or an agency that we then work closely with. And that's improved safeguarding policy. So I think, you know, if that's as a takeaway for today, for, for our listeners, if you find that time, ask for that time if you need it, because if you if you take it and you reach out and you get those connections, it will absolutely improve that practice and working together is what we're all trying to do isn't it to you know to to improve safeguarding and ensure best outcomes so i think for me that will be you know something that i want to improve but definitely something i'd advise people to do now obviously i mentioned earlier um in the in the show that we'd touch upon um the changes in keeping children safe in education 2023 now we could spend a whole show on this because you know it's such uh-huh. a big document and it it, you know it underpins everything we do it's so important but Pip for you you know are there any kind of just sort of like key changes that you can you can kind of pull out for our listeners because I'm sure for, for most of our listeners they'll be aware of it for any trainees or ECTs out there obviously that'll be kind of your bread and butter at the moment you'll have spent time kind of looking at that but are there any kind of key points you could just pull out for us that might make it easier to digest yeah, to be to be fair, there were only a couple this year. They were kind to us. There were only a couple. Um, the main one being a new emphasis on filtering and monitoring systems in IT, which again links into what we're saying about the online yeah. that pupils are accessing. So for me, it's it's a clarification around the oh, and there's also been um that's one big one, and the other one is the difference between children who are absent for education against children who are missing from education. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Because obviously for some listeners might not have kind of uh, have kind of, a, you know, if you're not really dealing with attendance, you might not have that kind of like in-depth knowledge of that. So what, what does that actually mean? Okay, so um, children who are absent from education are children who are on a school role somewhere, yeah. but are not attending that school. Right. A child who is missing from education is not on role at any educational establishment. 
Ah, that's definitely changed then, hasn't it? That kind it of has. understanding of what it is, because that, that isn't kind of what my my uh, my understanding up until now has been so for and although obviously i did know about the changes for for listeners who maybe aren't as you know aren't, aren't living that every day that's quite a big change isn't it really it is yeah and the thing alongside it is it, you have to see whether that fits in with your local authority attendance strategy because I know our local attendance strategy is a child is missing education if they haven't been seen for 10 days or more. Right. So you have to make sure that it's there's parity between your and the attendance strategy obviously is written for over three years, years ago, and it will need to now be amended to fit in with the keeping children safe in education. So how is from a safeguarding point of view? How do we put that into practice? How are we how are we using that information? I'm just thinking firstly of the um of the kind of the attendance. How do we how, what can we be doing as, as as safeguarding leads, as safeguarding teams, teachers, educators, support staff? What 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 can we do to kind of embed that and, and you know ensure best practice, do you think? I think um with it now in including a dis- keeping children safe in education including that distinction yeah i mean regardless if a child is absent from school they are at risk of some yeah. sort of safeguarding so if they're persistently absent you would use your school policy your attendance officer you know as paul said earlier if you've got a family support worker you could use them the child missing education is usually a formal local authority approach so you would link in with the local authority and utilise maybe school attendance teams. In the past, we've um, contacted the police if we haven't seen a child, despite numerous home visits with attendance teams, and asked, can they go and make sure that the child is OK? Um, I think you have to utilise everything you have, but you know your children. If the child usually attends and hasn't been attending and there isn't a valid reason from home, that should, again, it's your gut instinct, that's not right. You know, get out there to the family home, if possible, get your attendance team out, your attendance officer, and, you know, make sure that children are seen. If we look at the likes of Victoria Columbia, who wasn't seen, they kept saying, she was. you need to see the children. If we can't get in there, I have no hesitation in contacting the police and saying, I need you to go around and make sure that this child and is I think okay. That's, that's a really good point, isn't it? Um, for, for DSLs and DDSL safeguarding teams, is around having that confidence because it can be, you know, particularly if you don't experience, you know, the kind of the more extreme safeguarding issues on a regular basis. I think it's really important always, like you've you've literally drilled it in today, always refer to your policy because that is your protection and that is your go-to and your checklist. But being confident enough to, to, to ring the police because, you know, I think if you don't experience those high levels regularly, you can sort of self, almost doubt yourself a little bit and think, well, well, am, am I over-escalating this? Does it, does it really need to go to the police? Or can I just try again and do a home visit again another day? But if you've done multiple and you're getting nowhere, it's having that confidence to say, no, actually, I, you know, I'm not going to keep going to, out to the house eight, nine, ten times and, and, and hope that, you know, we get somewhere. I'm confident enough now to say, no, I am going to take that next step, even if it's scary to say, no, we're going to do this because it's in the best interest of the child and that family. Um, but I imagine it can be quite challenging for, for some staff if they haven't had to deal with that before. 
it, it can be, yeah. And like I say, it's in your school, you'll have people whose job and role it is. So an attendance officer, you would go to them and say, I'm really concerned about this child. They would then follow their policies and procedures. So they'd do the school attendance policy and then look at what the LA offer to support as well. So, you know, you would take it to someone who had more knowledge and experience of how best to move that forward. That's really good advice. What about the um what about the the kind of around um the 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 sort of the cyber aspect of the changes, you know, what how can schools implement that? What can what can we be doing to kind of work with that advice and and, and ensure best practice in in school? Is there anything that we can do? Yeah, absolutely. Um our school trialed before this came out um last summer. Um basically mirroring what the children were on we used one of the staff's laptops and when they were on it any kind of word that was a concern would come up so there are a lot of all generic words but you can then from locality put in things that might you know for example lemo where i am is slang for cocaine so if Lemma were to come up, you could see the context. You can literally see the screen of that young person and see what they're on and what they're actually looking at. Is it, you know, actually lemonade or is it they're looking for something else? And what they're asking is you look at what the children are on in your class. Now, with the best intention in the world, if you've got a class of 32 children yeah. and you're teaching ICT, it's very difficult for you to see what every one of them are on. So mm-hmm. I think more schools now will start looking and investing in um, tools that will yeah. help them filter and monitor because then you can start the conversations through your PSHE with your pastoral team about the kind of um, words they're looking at that, you know, are harmful, could be illegal, including pornography, you know, things on self-harm and suicide, misogyny, you mentioned earlier, racism, anything like that, that is harmful or upsetting content will be flagged up. And then as a school, you can use your pastoral teams and your PSHE to, you know, work with the young people around that. And hopefully also maybe work with parents and carers as well to kind of like create that again, that 360 approach. I think that's really good advice because sometimes, you know, when these changes come in, you can think, well, well what are we going to do here and how are we going to go about this? But I think, I think, you know, everything you've said there around it is, is, is really good advice, you know, to, and also, you know, make, reach out to your local authority, see what, um, like you said, see what what programs they offer, see what training they offer as well, see what um what what filters they put in place from kind of you know from the search engines. Are they able to to increase those themselves as an LA for your you know for your for your laptops? And if you're in a mat, you know whatever your service providers are, can they can they increase you know the the security on them to ensure that you know words and, and access to different different inappropriate material can, can be stopped and then have those challenging conversations and use your your PSHE, your assemblies, your form time, if you have personal development, whatever you frame it as, use that time to address those those issues with our young people as well. I, I just yeah, I think that's really good advice for, for us to remember, you know, for that keyword best practice, you know, where possible. Um 
so slightly moving away from that now, um, you've been involved in, in a lot of challenging situations and investigations as a DSL. Um, and I wondered kind of, you've probably experienced, you know, more than, than a lot of us will have. Um, but, but what advice would you give? Because we've got a lot of mainstream listeners and a lot of alternative provision listeners as well. Um, kind of, and regardless of where you work, we're still always working out with that best practice. We're still all there and experiencing safeguarding issues in some form or another. But what advice would you give to DSLs to safeguard themselves? Because regardless of what the issues are, I think as a DSL and a DDSL and a safeguarding team, it it does take its toll, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. You know, you say safeguarding, but it's child protection as well. And that mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know upset that can come because the the children who you work with who you know well or families who you know um i think for me it's about always being professionally curious always having that gut instinct about something um and again policies and procedures always communicate you know use other agencies you know there's a local authority safeguarding officer if if you're not sure on am i doing the right thing how do i get support you know, you can use the local authority for that support, use the rest of your safeguarding team. You know, I think debriefs are key, especially when you've been dealing quite intensively with a safeguarding incident and supervision in some cases to make sure that, you know, when you have all that, you have somewhere to offload it because it does build up and build up and build up and you get to a point where, as a DSL with a lot of... um, concerns coming in daily you move from one to the other to the other without thinking or processing so it's having that you know reflection and debrief time to put it all in perspective and to support yourself and keep yourself and your mental health and well-being you know as a priority yeah I think it, it, it's it's key isn't it I mean I know we've got a lot of people listening today thanks to Paul and Dale and Rosina for listening along but we had I had a tweet before from Tommy from pa- Proudly Pastoral and he said that there's an article that's appeared today called Safeguarding a DSL's Survival Guide so he said it's come out today and so I, just literally before we came on air I just had a quick scan of it, really, because it's definitely something I'll look into in more detail. But it gave some areas for kind of well-being, really, that included. And I, I wonder what your thoughts were, really, and, and our listeners' thoughts were. So it's ensuring there's enough staff, um, making time, reinforcing the support system, um, finding the positives, um, and setting boundaries and putting yourself first what what you know would you agree with them would you disagree what what are your thoughts on that I think yeah I think you know but ev- for me they would work but I've done safeguarding for 20 years and I feel that I have my own that I have your own strategy. developed over the years coping strategies support mm-hmm. strategies I you know know when my mental health maybe it is not 100% because of some of the things. And it's, it is, it's, it's self-preservation and it is very difficult when, you know, you have that responsibility. Yeah, and finding the things that fit for you really, I suppose, because that, that I mean, I think all that support is great, but but there's going to be some things, isn't there, that you're, you don't have control of. Like you, 
you know, as a DSL, you might not be able to ensure that there's enough staff to deal with the problems or that even that there's enough time. But I guess if you've got your own strategies that you can use to make sure that you are, you know, taking care of yourself when you're dealing with with situations, I think that's that's really important. I mean, I'd love to hear our listeners' feedback on that as well. You know, do you have strategies that you use to support you um, when you're, you know, when you're when you're dealing with safeguarding issues? Is that something you have um, you have access to? You know, do you have anything specific that you use? You know, I'd be really interested to hear if you do. Um, and I think as well. Um, one of the the keys to what you've just said that Paul sent in about um, the staff is having the support of the senior leadership team in the school mm. because they can, you know, if you need more staff, they are the people who will need to make sure that you have them and make sure that staff have time for debriefs and staff have time, you know, to, to log everything. So having a very supportive, you know, DSL uh, SLT team who support the DSL and the rest of the safeguarding team not just in words but in actions and in practice makes such a big difference I think that's such an important point as well isn't it and also asking for help I think you know if it you know particularly when you're dealing with some really difficult issues saying you know you know I would like some supervision or can we can we have a chat about that because obviously you know we've got to be mindful of confidentiality you know we know that you know part of ensuring best practice is making sure that we while we communicate um with our school staff and we share information where where needed it is appropriate and it is you know when it's confidential it's kept so but that opportunity to confidentially have supervision or some kind of debrief and and to have the confidence to be able to go and say do you know what it has this has been tough and I, I need to talk it through and and not feel that you're going to be judged on that or that you're not doing your job well it's just that it's okay to ask for support particularly when you're dealing with safeguarding issues all the time and 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 also for staff who've reported safeguarding incidents um one one um somebody had messaged me and I found this really interesting actually it was it was this morning and it said sometimes I struggle because I'll report safeguarding issues and because I'm not part of the safeguarding team I won't always be able to find the outcome of what's happened with that it's just it's been dealt with now I appreciate particularly in large mainstreams um, there is a process and there's a team and we don't always share information with everyone because you know it needs to be appropriate and, and sometimes it can't be for various reasons it simply can't be but for staff reporting safeguarding issues I guess we need to be mindful of their mental health as well as the safeguarding teams that how are they feeling after they've reported that do they need some support and and that it's okay to reach out and 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 ask for that there's there's no shame in that it doesn't mean you're not doing a good job it's just it can it can be it can be um it can be really triggering to have to um, to report things, can't it? Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, everyone who works in a school comes to school to help the young people, to teach them, to, you know, support them. And someone who you've, you know, built that relationship with and you then have to report something can be extremely upsetting. Mm-hmm. And particularly if then you report it and you don't know what's happening afterwards you know for you to work successfully with that child you need to know what's happened 
up to a point the relevant information you need to support that child in class like you say there may be some things that the member of staff doesn't need to know and i know um, in our school where we use cpoms which is our login system if i've had a concern from a member of staff i always make sure i put my response in the bottom so they know what actions have happened and then i will always follow that up with a conversation we are in a much smaller set and so it is easier than a big mainstream but again you can't um you can't mitigate for that conversation that needs to be had so they feel like it's not just something that's been written typed up and everyone's forgotten about there's a child in the center of this and we all need to be doing our best to support that child the person who's reported it needs to know because again they may have further information that comes from that child and they'll know it's relevant and it needs reporting yeah, I think that's a really good point. Now, I'm I'm going to um, ask you a quite a loaded question again now. And this is one for our listeners as well that I'm really interested to get feedback in. Um, so I'm going to ask you the question and then I'm just going to do a little message from our sponsors. But I'll ask you the question first so you've got some time to think about this. Right. So earlier this year, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, committed to a mandatory reporting duty subject to consultation for those working or volunteering with children to report child sexual abuse. So we know that most people are already reporting it, but now it would become mandatory. And obviously with that, there would be consequences if it wasn't. So I'd be really interested to hear yours, yours and our listeners thoughts on that. So I'm going to leave with that for a second to kind of like gather your thoughts. I just want to read a quick message from our lovely sponsors. So, Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where EDAPT come in. They're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal employment and mental health support. Protection without politics. What makes EDAPT different? They're always apolitical and independent. They specialise solely in supporting individual teachers. Every caseworker is professionally qualified, ensuring you get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are there for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today adapt supporting school staff protecting careers and here's something special for teachers talk radio listeners during september use the codes ttr annual or ttr monthly and you'll receive a 10 percent discount on a subscription with adapt you could save over 80 pounds compared to an equivalent union membership so a massive thanks to adapt right pip I asked you quite a loaded question uh, regarding this kind of mandatory uh, commitment, mandatory reporting duty and the commitment that our Home Secretary's made to it. I'd be interested to what our listeners think about that. Mandatory is such a, a loaded word, isn't it? What are your thoughts on this? As, as we're on uh, radio, I won't give what I actually said when I heard this. Um, mm -hmm. It's a knee-jerk reaction to a report that showed an awful lot of failings. Um, and I, for me, the, the key is about the volunteers. So we have 
robust safeguard and training. It's rigorous. Staff get updates every half term as well as local and national updates when they occur. For volunteers who are working with children who do not have access to that ongoing training and update, it I think it's dangerous to ask them to report something because it's a little bit of information and sometimes a little bit of information is a dangerous thing. If you're not 100% sure, you know, identifying child sexual abuse and reporting it, it is, like you say, it's quite a traumatic thing to do. And if you're worried about the fact that I legally have to do that, you know, that's going to cause upset and trauma to the, the, the adults and particularly to the children if it's not done in the right way because the training hasn't been there or that they're not clear on exactly what sexual abuse is. Because I think for me, obviously, you know, we, we encourage absolutely everyone, like you said, to report any any concerns at all. But you report them onto the chain, don't you? So, you know, if you're a volunteer, you'll report it to whoever the safeguarding lead is within that organisation. And then Dell, who've had more training, will look at it and report it onto the next person and so on and so on. But if there's a kind of a, a standardised reporting system that we will be using, it, it it could put put people off it could um it could you like you said there could be misinformation if we're just jumping straight to that um to that kind of system where everything's being reported to the highest level straight away without kind of anyone who's had the training looking at it investigating etc it could prove dangerous also I, i don't know how we'll monitor that you know for me there's questions around how will we monitor it because it it, it it it's very difficult isn't it you know if it's if it's going to kind of a, a standardized reporting system who's checking that information if it's if it's going to, to police is it it a, you know a police we already know have issues around um and funding and, and 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 time are they going to be able to investigate every single one will will a a, a genuine concern be missed because of the amount of um reports that that are not genuine or that maybe aren't that level of risk i mean we're not no one's saying it's not everybody's responsibility to to safeguard children and absolutely we must report any concerns around you know um a child sexual abuse but it's where we report it to isn't it and then are people going to be worried about the criminal aspect and, and could they be held accountable legally it's it's a real gray area isn't it at the moment and it's kind of come out and then there's been no real follow up to it, and you're sort of thinking, well, well, where's the clarification? Um, I think you've got to look at as well, like you mentioned, police, the resources to support that level of, uh, of you know, um, contact that will be going in. Who who checks it? Who oversees it? Who almost triages it to what level of it needs to go to? Are there enough police? Are there enough um, support from, say, hospitals, social care, all that external support? It's a ripple effect. So you report one thing, but how many other agencies then need to become a part of it? And like you said, Anna, who keeps all that information? Who has all that information? Have we got gone back to separate agencies holding information rather than what we said earlier, which was the whole working together to support the children? Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it's it 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 kind of throws up some red flags, really, doesn't it? And and I think without further clarification, it it's kind of it. I know it certainly plays on my mind because I'm like, 
I want I want to understand this and I know that you know they've made a commitment to it and, it and I know it's got to go to consultation but I can't see at the moment how it's going to work and I can't get my head around it and I'm kind of quite eager to get that clarification so that we, we can have a say because I think as as safeguarding teams as educators when it goes to consultation we absolutely need to be included because we are the ones that have the best possible understanding of how practically, particularly in education settings or in learning settings, the steps to safeguard how they work and how they safeguard everyone. And so we need to, we need to be able to feed into that, really, don't we, into that consultation. I really do hope that we get an opportunity to do that because I think it's going to be vital in, in shaping this if it if it does become mandatory. Um, so moving slightly on again because we we are sort of I, I could spend all day talking to you and picking your brain and I feel like I've learned a lot today and I'm going to go away and take away so much and I hope other colleagues or the listeners are as well and just a couple of things really because today we've been thinking about best practice and how to ensure that within safeguarding and I think we've talked about the you know how important it is to communicate to share any niggles whatsoever um I've had a a, a brilliant tweet here from Dale who said he works in a secondary with over 880 students um, and it's a good school in a challenging context. Um, and he, they, he was told on inset day by the DDSL that they'd had around 2,400 2, referrals uh, in the academic year. So we can see that, you know, in a lot of schools, they are communicating well, they're reporting things, they're communicating with each other. We know that workload and time play a massive part in in affecting safeguarding and we've got to be mindful of that we've talked about teamwork and working together and you know reaching out to other agencies making sure that you link up for cpd for for, for support for help but what would be the one piece of advice that you as a really experienced you know specialist dsl that works with mainstreams and and, and you know ap's what would your piece of advice be to ensure best practice best practice so go with your gut mm. always always never step out of follow policies and procedures they keep you safe yeah and report and record everything accurately i love them for me then three things are how i work and i am a rule follower and if you stay in them guidelines and follow them. You cannot go wrong because you are following what you are taught to do. I think it's so important. And I know we get loads of them. Listen, I'm as guilty as everyone else. We get loads of policies given to us on inset day or told to go and look at them. And, you know, you kind of glance over them and you think, yeah, 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 I've got that. I've got the gist of that. But I think there are some, you know, we need to be, I'm not suggesting we don't need to be aware of all policies and skills, but there are some where you need to spend that extra time deep diving into it. And I would agree. I think safeguarding policy is up there with one that, you know, while I'm not expecting anyone to be able to quote it offhand, you really do need to have a deep understanding of it and, and a clear understanding so that when it comes to any safeguarding issue, you can refer to it straight away. And you've got that, um, that level of understanding about what you need to do and, and what the next step is. Um, and I think I agree with you. you know, I think we've all talked about it today. Report everything, because if you do, 
it can then be filtered through the DSL, the DDSL, the safeguarding team. And then it's on to the next step after that and the next one after that. And your report might not be anything. It, 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 it might be like one small little piece of the jigsaw, like Pip said. Um, but if it's a niggle, like Amy said, that is your professional instinct. Go with it. Report it. Because if it's nothing, then all it is is a report on the system. But if it's nothing, that in isolation is nothing, but then when you build it up, it could lead to something that could potentially safeguard and keep safe one of our children. And ultimately, that's what we're working towards, keeping everybody safe, yourself, the children, the staff. You need to look after yourselves and safeguard yourselves, but you need to look after the children as well. Amazing advice. Thank you so much, Pip. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and to everybody that's contributed. Thank you so much. Please remember, report, go with your gut, follow policy and safeguard yourself, your staff and your children. Thank you so much to everyone. I look forward to speaking to you in two weeks. It's been brilliant to have so many contributions. I hope that you feel you've learned a little bit about best practice today. I hope you take away lots of the tips. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to work with me today. Thank you so much. Have a lovely Sunday and take care. See you soon. Thank you, everyone. It's Thanks, been brilliant. Anna. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.